This is Angelina Jaspers, author of Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, If I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Joining us today on the Marketing Book Podcast is Angelina Jaspers to talk about her book, Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career. Angelina Jaspers is a 30-year corporate marketing veteran. Her career in Fortune Global companies such as HP and Kodak has survived revolving door CEOs, business course corrections, and lots of reinventions. And across all her VP leadership roles, such as marketing, brand strategy, environmental sustainability, corporate communications, none escaped disruption. After being tapped to lead multiple company-wide transformations, Angelina became a student of business and career agility, and these experiences led her to develop the Marketing Flexology Management Framework that we're going to talk about, which is a mindset and a tool set that she teaches for outsmarting change and future-proofing your career. Angelina, congratulations on Marketing Flexology, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you, Douglas, and I'm thrilled to be here. Well, this book got me pretty excited, and this is exactly the kind of book that belongs on the Marketing Book Podcast, and I say that for a variety of reasons, which I'm going to go into, but a lot of the things addressed in your book are the kinds of things listeners are asking me about almost every day. And I should also say that you know I read a lot of these books, it's, and it's my deep pleasure to do so, but this book is only 149 pages, but, but we could easily turn this discussion, this book, into like multiple interviews uh, for the podcast. And just so you know, when I get a book, I get books every day now from folks you know, saying, hey, maybe your audience would like this, and so they all come in here, and honestly, and I shouldn't do this, when I see a book that's over 200 pages now, because I've read so many of them, my first question is, Why? 
(laughs) And sometimes there's a good reason, but sometimes uh, there's not. And now with this one, 149, you've just set the standard. And I I feel like I'm going to be saying, well, now, wait a minute. Angelina packed this book full. uh, You should see it now. It's completely, it's not only marked up, but it's got highlighters and a little post-it notes hanging off of it. And it's going to be, there's a lot of things we're going to be using. As I told you, before we started recording, I, I wrote, uh, in the margins uh, around sections of the book, steal this, steal this. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is so, it's, it's extremely well written, very, not a wasted word. And at the very end, you've got a 90 day uh, weekly checklist of all the things that you can do to transform your organization and your own career uh, that you describe in the book. So uh, it's just uh, congratulations. And if I'm not mistaken, this is a self-published book. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Well, thank you very much for the kudos. And I do think brevity and focus and, you know, is is very key. So I appreciate your comments. You know, at first, at first, it was like 150 pages. That doesn't seem like it's enough to publish a book. But I did try very hard to pack it full of practical advice and tips and some case studies that might resonate with folks. I haven't written a book, but it's my sense that it's much more difficult to write a short book than a longer one. And I think there was even uh, Mark Twain or someone who said, yeah. I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I've written you a long one. Exactly. You're exactly right. I, I think it was Mark Twain that said that. So I wanted to quote just the introduction. Uh, I, if I could share that with listeners, you know, or if you, uh, that sure. is enough to get people excited about this. And it's called, it's, it's really a manifesto. I don't know if you're thinking of it that way, but mm-hmm. it's flex or die. <laughs> this is where I really, really marked it up, and I was just like, oh, it was almost a religious experience. So I was saying, yes, yes. And I say that in part because um, I, I gave a talk recently to a marketing group, and I'm going to be developing another talk and talking to another uh, marketing group, and there were a lot of things in that talk that were also touched on in this book, and that's why <laughs> several of the things in this book I'm going to be quoting because, it, again, it just... It's, it's what I want to grab the lapels of a lot of marketers who are really struggling and, and to find their way. And you explain well, this crazy environment we're in, and I want them to understand it. So it was really a, a great experience. I just want to quote from one section at the very beginning. And you talk about how you uncovered a unique mindset that only winners possessed. You call it a business-first mindset. And cultivating this trait is by far the most important thing a dynamic marketing leader can do. It goes like this. When faced with any business decision, place your company and customers first before your team and before yourself. It may feel counterintuitive, but it works. All of these experiences led me to develop the Marketing Flexology Management Framework, a mindset and a tool set for future-proofing your career, your team, and your marketing platform. Whether you're building a new group, expanding an existing one, downsizing, or transforming, the pages that follow will help you design a resilient marketing foundation that can withstand any business fluctuation, management change, or crisis du jour. The pace of business has accelerated over the past several years and shows no signs of slowing. 
It's time to take control before someone else does. So Angelina, you talked about how throughout your career, even I think just at HP, you had like six different CEOs and six different CMOs. And throughout your career, even beyond that, you talked about how the successful people from the not successful, basically the winners from the losers. Can you talk more about what this common thread started to become over time between the winners and the losers? No, that's a very good point, and I'm glad you highlighted that. So it sounds like a holdover from a baby boomer generation, perhaps. You know, put your company first or your customer first, but it really does apply across all generations, and even to the new millennials. It sounds counterintuitive, like you mentioned, but it does work. So this is kind of how it goes. You know, when faced with a business decision, as you mentioned, you know, you have three choices, any business decision. How is this decision, if I make it, going to impact me as a person, my career, my budget, my standing, my role within the company or outside the company? Or some leaders look at it and say, how is this decision going to impact my team? You know, is it going to um, um elevate them? Is it going to minimize them? Is it going to separate them or consolidate them? But the best way of looking at this, obviously, is what's the impact of this? How is this decision that I make on a day-in and day basis going to impact my customer or my business? And I found that I've led, as you mentioned, Douglas, a numerous um, really global scale business transformations, marketing transformations, change initiatives. At HP, just to give you an example, we had over 6,000 marketing professionals around the globe. And the challenge of consolidating and optimizing and making them more efficient and effective obviously was uh, a big challenge. And I was put in charge of optimizing the marketing mix and spend and uh, et cetera. And by doing that, I really was able to witness firsthand and work firsthand with literally hundreds of marketing leaders. And I saw how they managed their team and how they made decisions and time and again, the ones that, you know, were thinking about how is this going to impact me or my team, they ended up being the career losers. And the ones that said, you know, sucked it up and said, this is, you know, stood up and said, this is the, this is what the company needs me to do right now. I'm a business leader, uh, are the ones that really fared out very well or really es- escaped with minimal impact and actually even elevated as a result of some of these change initiatives. And it was great to read through it because you're able to show how it worked. And towards the end of the book, you talk about how you remind us that accounting is the language of business. And uh, the more that marketers know uh, accounting, the more they're going to be, I would think, respected, listened to. And they're going to get what I like to say in the revenue camp. So people will start to associate them with, oh, those are the ones that are actually uh, focused on revenue, focused on generating uh, income for the company. Yeah. And uh, I think that what might help these folks to take a business approach, a business standpoint, is, as you say, think strategically. And if, they, if they're familiar with the financial aspects of their business, or even a bit, they're going to do much better. Exactly. Yeah, marketing is frequently looked at as a cost center. And I like to view marketing as an investment center. 
right? Because it's really a matter of do I put more money into my marketing budget, more money into feet on the street, more money into a technology. It's a decision that the leaders make. And so if marketing can be viewed as an investment rather than a cost, it, it has a better opportunity or chance of not being cut when times are challenging. Yes, and there was another book on the podcast a while back by Debbie Gagish called Rise of the Revenue Marketer. In that interview, she said several times, revenue marketers stay and traditional marketers get asked to leave. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to read that. I wrote that down. Rise of the Revenue Marketer. Yes, I think you would like it. It was, it was one of my favorites, but of course, anything with revenue in it and marketing... <laughs> Is, is, is it great. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the perception of marketers. You said, uh, and I've seen something about this before, that out of 9,800 board seats in Fortune 1000 companies, marketers occupy a grand total of 68. Yeah. What, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think because they're seen as a... <laughs> the uh, creative arm in many cases. I think getting back to what you said earlier, I don't think they're speaking the language of business. So rather than, and they don't progress not only to board seats, but they also don't progress to the CEO spot very often. You know, they usually take someone from operations or someone with a finance background or even someone from a sales background, but rarely do you see a CEO of a company rise through the ranks after having been a marketing leader for that company. And I do think it gets back to credibility. I think marketers, it's it's a challenge being a marketer. It always has been, right? Uh, it's challenging time to be a marketer. Consumers are ever demanding, ever changing, and as a result, you know, marketers, marketing strategies and marketing programs have to be ever changing and dynamic as well. Well, let me add to that and scare the hell out of the listener. <laughs> On page 91, you were talking about a study that I think Forrester commissioned with Oracle, and it indicated that the adoption of modern marketing capabilities is lagging with only 11% of respondents yeah. identified as modern marketers. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that fascinating? It was troubling. It was worrisome. And let's talk a little bit more about some of the things that marketers uh, can be doing. I know I'm jumping sort of out of order here. but it's fine. So in the book, you talk about the three main pillars of marketing agility, which are organizational agility, personal agility, and learning agility. Mm-hmm. Let's start with that third one. Talk about what you mean by learning agility and why that's so important. It's a very valid point. So I think the ability to learn, you, have you heard of the 70-20-10 model? It's used by HR in the learning and development community. And it goes something like this. 70% of all learning is through experience, through on the job, in the trenches, getting a variety of experiences. 20% is through mentors or mentees where you're learning from coaching. And only 10% is from classroom learning. So companies today do not invest in training and development of their employees like they used to in mm-hmm. our generation or when I started, you know, there was, we would go weeks, you know, and have uh, training and development programs, how to be a more strategic marketer, how to increase your creativity. Today, it's very much, um, they buy, buy capabilities rather than grow capabilities. And especially with today's full market employment market. And so lifelong learning agility is something that we have to take upon ourselves to be continually in search of new opportunities, new ways of doing things, new – the company's not going to come to you. You're going to have to initiate those ways of learning things, whether it's a new skill, a new technology, uh, et cetera, to remain flexible and adaptable in the new world. 
And I was startled and encouraged when you mentioned the Corn Ferry study. They conducted, let's see, 2.5 million leadership assessments over the past over four decades. Four yeah. decades. And yeah. they found that being learning agile, yeah. everyone listen, being learning agile is a key predictor of success and a critical attribute of effective breakthrough leadership above yeah. intelligence, education level, or even leadership competencies. Yet only 15% of executives possess this trait. But I would argue that listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast are largely in that 15% just because I've met so many of them. And they're just the fact that they're listening to this podcast or others yeah. uh, to learn more about their field and, and how to be more successful is a good thing. So I can't underscore that the, the point that I like to say, uh, big learners are big earners. <laughs> I like that. I, I like that. And the ability to learn on the fly, you know, is really, really important. You know, it's a fast, faster is the new fast world. And, you know, we don't have any choice but to master our ability to adapt and learn. And uh, the 15%, I would I would agree with you. I think they're the ones that are listening to podcasts that are doing self-help, that are trying to increase their skills on a daily basis. And while the companies aren't necessarily hauling us in for teaching, there's never been a better time to learn on your own. And, you know, just a couple things that come to mind, there's all kinds of free marketing academies and like HubSpot has, oh, they must have 20 different free certifications. And I think only two or three are about their product. All the rest is about how to be a better marketer. And I, for one, can tell you they're excellent. Google, several certifications you can have. And the list goes on and on. And you can put those on your LinkedIn profile. And guess what? Recruiters are looking for those things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no shortage. With the internet, There, and most of the information is free. It just requires you to carve out a couple hours a week you know, or a day you know, to stay current, stay abreast, and stay nimble, stay uh, in a learning mode. Yeah. So you talked about the changes in marketing over the last you know, 60 years where marketing heads were largely creative directors or broadcast advertisers. And that's because that's what worked very well back then. You know, there was a limited, there was a captive audience. And, you know, if you, trust me, I worked, you know, in big ad agencies in New York. In fact, we even were, I worked at the agency for Kodak. And hey. the good old days were when you could run a network ad and your market share would go up. Sadly, uh, those days are over. But the, the bigger issue is that, you talk about how some of marketing is commonly held truths, and they're actually false. And if I had to guess, the, the biggest false truism of marketing for you is that it's uh, this art and science thing. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. If you, do, if you do a Google search, and I just did one last night to see what the number was, and you type in, is marketing art or science, you'll get over 600 million, almost a half a billion responses. So it really goes to show how pervasive that argument about marketing art, marketing science. And today, clearly, the pendulum has swung toward marketing science. Mm -hmm. Witness the rise of MarTech and ad tech. You know, Scott Brinker, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, I interviewed him about uh, his book, Hacking Marketing. Loved it. Yes, yes. And he runs very successful MarTech conferences. And he does this 
annual technology landscape, super graphic, he calls it. And he's done this for the last six or seven years. And it started and it, it measures the number of marketing technology vendors out there and solutions out there. And it's grown from like 150 marketing technology solutions in 2010 to over 7,000 marketing technology. In fact, you know, the IT spend, remember we used to talk about shadow IT? Mm-hmm. Well, MarTech, MarTech is the new shadow IT, yeah. quite frankly, because marketers spend more on technology today than the IT departments spend. I mean, it's amazing. And when that was predicted, I guess by Gartner a couple of years ago, everybody said no. No, yeah, yeah, and we're all going to have flying cars. <laughs> I think it happened actually earlier than they uh, they said it would. And his website is Chief Martech. You can go there. You can see this graphic. Sometimes when I'm giving a talk to a, a business group, you know, they, they want to know about all these changes that are going on. I put that up there just to make a point. It's much better to make a visual point quickly than to try to ramble on about it. It's amazing the sort of depressed look. <laughs> The overwhelmed look that comes over a lot of people's faces like, oh, my God. Yeah, this really has become quite complicated, but it really gets their attention. Yeah, but I do think the pendulum swung too far, Douglas, because I think we have too many marketers that I work with that sit behind computer screens, you know, uh, uh, treating variables in an equation to see which one's going to pull better in their their ad or their campaigns. And they're not really up close and personal with the customers. So I think we have to come back to some kind of a balance where it's not just about science uh, it's not just about technology, but it's, it comes a little bit more full stream. And that's where I talk about there's a new art and science out there, in my view. And that's kind of one of the premises of my book, that it's no longer just about art and science, but the marketing art and science of yesteryear has been leapfrogged, if you will, by today's customer demand of 24-7. And we need a lifeline into that customer that can turn that insight that we get into action faster than our competitors. So I argue in the book, and I talk about it, that insight and agility is the new marketing art and science. And that's what I call the framework of marketing flexology. Right, and that's a big overarching concept in the the entire book. And just to be uh, honest with you, the chapter on insight had to be my favorite. Oh, and- good. Good to hear. Good to hear. <laughs> well, I just, it's, it's such a seemingly simple concept, but it's so difficult for companies to do. And he, let me just add to that your comment about insights. Martin Lindstrom wrote a book called Small Data, and he talked about how marketers are just focusing way too much on the data, the science, just like you said. And he said, you've got to get up from that desk and you've got to go visit customers at their homes. Uh, He talked about one company, there's a couple companies that he talked about where they now require every employee to spend a day with a customer. And they said the the insights from that are just very, very dramatic and it helps all of their operations. And it also brings to mind one of my favorite quotes often attributed to David Ogilvy about how uh, marketers use data sort of like a drunk uses a lamppost, Lamppost. (laughs) uh, more for support than for illumination. Uh, and then there's been a several other books that I, I talk about, and sometimes people look at me like I have a third head, but it was like Buyer Personas by Adele Ravella or Roadmap to Revenue by Kristen Zhivago and, and several others. And at the, the centerpiece of much of the marketing and their books is about the fact that you have to go talk to your customers. 
No, it's so true. And you have to have, and I like your the idea of that little data, because I do think that we look a lot at big data, but the importance of little data are those little key nuggets of insight that really can unlock the hearts and minds of your consumer. I think those are really golden. And, you know, we're no longer in um, a, a model. We don't have time for long, drawn-out focus groups. And I'm sure you and I have sat behind two-way mirrors many a time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or brand tracking studies that mm-hmm. are, you know, that's really, we talked about the financial aspects of marketing. Well, brand tracking studies, you know, some of that data and some of those metrics are kind of black box metrics, uh, marketing speak. And some of the executives, I'm not sure they even believe it or follow it. And we don't do combative agency shootouts anymore or hire expensive management consultants. A lot of those things are history. So I think the ability to tap into your customer have a lifeline, um, and and act upon that insight at a moment's notice is really, you know, the new art and science. Mm. Well, speaking of science, and uh, by marketing podcast law, I'm required to say bots, AI, augmented reality. Okay, there, I've done it. Check that box. Um, a lot of people are concerned about their jobs being replaced, and many, many listeners to this podcast right now, they will be in a different job five years from now that doesn't even exist right now. People are concerned about their jobs being taken over by robots and so forth and so on. But please explain how creativity is marketing's best career insurance. Uh, yeah, yeah. The robots are coming. You know, the, the belief is that if you can do self-driving cars, why can't you do self-driving marketing, right? And so that's another... Uh, good reason to develop the skills that robots can't yet, you know, uh, replicate and creativity, empathy, emotional intelligence, you know, all those wonderful skills and traits that human understanding, the ability to make decisions at a, at a moment's notice, these are all things that robots can't replicate. So I would say hone those skills uh, to remain a solvent marketer for the next decade or more. So we talked about uh, learning agility and why that's so important. And uh, Angelina, I just wanted to ask you one favor. Um, You talk in the book about all the different types of things people can be doing to uh, boost their career and continue to be a a continuous learner. And there was even one quote from um, a Microsoft VP who said, just pretend you're a student the rest of your life. Yeah, I like that. I like that. (laughs) I may carve that one in stone. But I did want to ask... When you do the second edition of this, and I know there will be future editions because this is going to be very uh, popular, if you could just put in a plug for, you know, listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. um, Oh, absolutely. I don't don't need an answer right now. If you could just think about that, uh, you know. Absolutely. No, I'd be delighted. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) No, I'd be delighted. And there's other there's other great marketing podcasts, and there's many other things. And of course, uh, marketers need a balanced learning diet. You know, they should be reading blogs, they should be uh, yeah. watching uh, webinars, they should be reading books from time to time. You don't need to read as many as your knuckleheaded uh, host. But let me ask about these other two things because you talked about learning agility. Can you talk about uh, uh, organizational agility and personal agility? Because these are these these different aspects of agility are uh, really central to the book. So agility, so it's agility, there's many forms of agility, of course, you know, you talk about, well, there's a number of things uh, that are agile. When we look at our operations, we talk about process agility, your manufacturing agility, your supply chain agility, you know, there's product agility for your portfolio, there's leadership agility, whether it's emotional agility, strategic agility, but a quote from uh, a gentleman that leads the LinkedIn group of on, on agility says, uh, organizational agility is when all other agilities are present. 
So organizational agility, in my view, is when the entire organization values and acknowledges that agility is a lifelong leadership skill. Like we talked about the Corn Ferry study Mm -hmm. and their 2.5 million assessments. In fact, there is a wonderful matrix. It's called a professional agility scale that was developed by uh, the National Resource Council, which is the government of Canada's premier research arm. And they actually looked at agility company-wide and how you can take it from level one to level five. So level one on the professional agility scale would be adapts when change is needed and it's explained. And then the progressive levels on that agility scale is where you model, proactively model change behavior and pave a uh, path to that for the rest of the organization. So organizational agility, I call that the power of scale, you know, is really the ideal. But there is things that you can do if you're not in a position to impact uh, agility company-wide. There are things you can do on a personal or professional level. And I, I call those out in, in my book, the one, I'll just mention the one, and I talk about it as the power of association. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, there's a quote that says, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And this was said by uh, Jim Rohn, who's an author and motivational speaker. And yes, you can't always pick your family or, or pick your neighborhood or pick your CEO or even sometimes your boss. But you can pick the employees you hire, the suppliers you choose, the teams you form, the coworkers you have lunch with or hang out with after work, the mentors that you mentor and that um, that mentor you. And you can choose the professional associations and the podcast you listen to. So the power of association is is something totally within our control and will help build our professional agility mm-hmm. as marketing leaders. Right. It's like a pick your own marinade. But one of the biggest points, one of the most important things for listeners is to understand that you need to take control of what you can control. Meaning if you're in a big organization that just doesn't get it, I hear this from a lot of marketers. They go, they don't understand what we do. They don't understand what's going on. Well, that's not their problem. That's your problem. You need to take control of what you can. And in your book, you talk about a lot of things that can happen and a lot of the leadership that you need to provide to your organization. One of the many things that could happen is they could start to see what's going on in, in marketing, at which point they're going to start asking you to the table. And they're going to start saying, oh, wow, you, you guys are more than just arts and crafts party planners. No, absolutely. No, during, especially during times of change or transformation, these marketing or these uh, uh, business leaders, they're looking for people to come up with solutions. And sometimes some of the suggestions that you might have had or initiatives you might have had that were kind of put on the back burner, they become more receptive uh, during times of change and transition. So I, I think be proactive and get in the thick of things and offer suggestions. Again, it comes back to that business first mindset instead of wallowing and saying, woe is me, when will this be over? Yeah. You know, take an active role in transforming your organization and offering advice. Raise your hand, you know, step up, you know, because again, the, the leaders of the company are looking for people to get on board and to help with the transformation or the change initiative. Absolutely. And let's say, okay, well, this podcast uh, host and the guest, they're, you know, it sounds like they're wagging their finger, which we're not. We're trying to help. <laughs> but the fact is, the successful marketers are doing exactly that. And you can look in Angelina's book, and you can also look in the book by Barda and Barwise called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader where they did a massive study and they figured out what the most successful marketers are doing and they're 
it's exactly what Angelina just described. They are, there's a certain leadership that you're providing your, your organization. I will go as far as to say that if you are a marketer and you are waiting for your organization to tell you what to do, you will not have that job in five years and it, it probably will be because uh, you've been fired. Yep, totally agree, 100%. Yeah, raise your hand, you know, raise your hand and say yes. You know, I love the quote by uh, Richard Branson. Uh, he said, uh, if somebody offers you an amazing opportunity and you're not sure you can do it, say yes, and then figure out how to do it later. You know, yeah. it's it's so true. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you don't know how to solve a problem or go through the change, just raise your hand. Offer to do a brainstorming session. Get insight from team members on, on uh, what are the problems that need to be solved. You know, there's so many things that, that you can do as a marketing leader. But you do have to be proactive and make a conscious decision that you're not going to be a victim. I see a lot of marketing people act as victims in budget cuts or, or team cuts or downsizings. You know, they have to look like the victor, you know, mm-hmm. and to really lead the change. You know, transform or be transformed, I'd like to say. Yeah, absolutely. That was a point driven home in the book. And Richard Branson, running all his companies, he probably asked people to do things where he wasn't going to be able to tell them how to do it, but he was looking for a certain outcome. And he hires very bright people, as I'm sure a lot of companies do, and they just need to go figure it out. And it reminds me of a podcast I was listening to by the company uh, Databox, and they, they, they provide visual analytics. And my friend Pete Caputa, who used to be at HubSpot, he's now the CEO there, and there was this podcast where he was being interviewed, and he was talking about the early days at HubSpot, which was a, a startup 10, 15 years ago, and now a multi-billion dollar company. And what, what I took from it is that they spent a lot of time what he described as figuring stuff out. <laughs> Yep. Meaning yep. they really didn't have answers for a lot of things, but they yeah. and the team were full of very, uh, was staffed with very capable, smart people, and they spent a lot of time figuring stuff out, uh, things yeah. that, where there wasn't an answer. So let that be uh, uh, some encouragement for folks. But there was another couple things I want to talk about in the book that I think would be really helpful for the listeners, and that has to do with organizational change. And I, I want to ask you to go through these because I think it would be helpful for the listeners to have this in the back of their head. In other words, go sniffing out for these kinds of things because that's where the action's going to be, and it's also where you can get ahead of your career instead of reacting to external forces. And you talk about the biggest motivators of organizational change, and it's four things, and if we could discuss each one, that would be really helpful. Changing model, Uh a changing market, changing management, and changing metrics. And you know, we have a marketing firm here, and we're providing business services. And just being reminded of these four things, it's going to be even more helpful for us when we're engaging with a company, and we're trying to put our finger on which, if not all, of these things are really what's the straw that's stirring the drink. So, Because people will come to you, you know, in sales with a surface pain, but there's really something else going on. And as I read this, I thought, well, it's clearly one of these four things that, that always seems to be yeah. coming up that people may not be able to articulate. So talk about what it means by changing model. Well, sometimes, you know, changing your business model is the only way that a company can survive, right? So you look at, I'll use the IBM example, whether mm-hmm. you love them or hate them, but they have, they started out in 1911 selling grocery store scales and time recording devices and tabulators. 
And they've changed their model since 1911 numerous times with different uh, outcomes. In the 1960s, as you know, they went more toward computing, uh, with, starting with large mainframes and then going into PCs, big blue to little blue. You know, then they hit that rocky patch in the 90s, at which point they began to focus on IT and consulting. Remember, at that point, they had bought uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers Consulting and, and uh, Lotus Development Software. You know, and then just uh, in 2011, when the new CEO, Ginny Romady, joined, they further changed their model and modified it to have a mix uh, of fields of cloud-based services and cognitive computing. So IBM Watson is kind of their signature uh, product there. But regardless of what you think of them, you know, they have lost some of their dominance um, at, that they enjoyed during the mainframe era, but they still are a major IT player, and you got to hand it to them. You know, they're 400,000 employees, 79 billion, over 100 years old, and they have successful, successfully been able to reinvent their business model over the years, and that was out of necessity. Otherwise, they would be a business statistic that we would be reading about in a case study. Mm -hmm. So kudos to them for changing. So that's kind of the change in model. And that's the signal to marketers, you know, early warning sign as the company changes model, that transformation is in the air. And there's an opportunity there, obviously, to lead that change. Mm -hmm. A change in market, you know, is also a, a big warning sign or one of the motivations or often triggers. Ignored. <laughs> often ignored, right? <laughs> and to their own peril, right? So appealing to a new audience um, or generation of consumers, you know, is uh, sometimes the biggest um, driver of organizational change. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of examples from, you know, KFC, you know, uh, that used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken and the Colonel. Then they realized that fried was not something the newer generation uh, strive for. And they also knew, so they changed from, uh, they took the fried out and went to KFC and, and, and updated their kernel. And then they also, for the new newer generation that likes less messy food choices and eats on the go, they came up with nuggets and dipping sauces and sandwiches. So that is a company that was able to change to the market, market mm -hmm. requirements. And it also brings to mind any number of companies and industries that have been disintermediated by the internet, like the recording industry. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. No, technology can really change your market too, mm -hmm. or advance a competitive advance. And all of a sudden your market is, you know, disrupted and you have to change or in order to survive. So these are things that companies go through in order to, you know, survive for the next week, quarter or year. Mm -hmm. And Angelina, I would add that if, Let's say this doesn't come up. Well, it's not the worst thing in the world if that marketer is thinking about these things and maybe helps with the leadership, helps introduce some of these, um, gingerly perhaps, uh, some of these things that are changing in the market to help uh, drive these folks at least in the right direction in terms of what they should be thinking about. Absolutely. No, that's, that's a very good opportunity to be proactive and to serve up. You know, to say these are some trends that are happening in the marketplace that we need to react to, we need to be prepared for, yeah, and avert that. You mm -hmm. know, having been at, at Kodak, Eastman Kodak Company, as you mentioned earlier, a good I started my career there. You know, I could see firsthand some of the change in market. You know, the technology at that time was changing very quickly from analog to digital, and uh, some of the uh, 
discussions and some of the tugs of war that went on internally at the company as they were trying to figure out how to make money in the brave new digital worlds when all their plants and material and employees were focused around you know putting chemicals on a film substrate right so and wasn't it kodak that had the patent for the digital camera they did you know they were the first company surprisingly because everybody says oh they missed the digital revolution no they They missed it no they didn't (laughs) They actually had the patents. They had a, I think it was back in 1975, an engineer at Kodak, Steve Sassoon, I believe his name was. He came up with the first digital camera that showed that it was possible. Now it was clunky, it was burdensome, it was heavy, it was expensive, but it was digital. And uh, But to Kodak's credit, they did invest billions of dollars in digital technology. But there was a lot of... Um, like I said, tug of war, and now we read about them. They're a much smaller company, you know, than yes. they were in their heyday. And now we read about them as a case study of what to do or what not to do. Yes, and it, it, Alan Adamson in his book Shift, he talked quite a bit about Kodak, and it's easy to say, oh, they missed the boat. No, they didn't. It, no, <laughs> they they invented it, and there were a whole lot more complicated things going on there. But from an organizational dynamic, it was very interesting because I think in your book, even you talked about how they had ninety percent market share. They did. They did. So. I mean, it's tough when you're, you know, complacency and being being success really bleeds breeds complacency, which breeds, you know, uh, failure over yeah, time. Because it it's it hard was. to stay king of the hill, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So changing management—that seems like it's even that's 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 more evident. Yeah. So a change in management, obviously. And I've been, as I mentioned, the 14 years I was at HP, there was six different. CEOs and six different CMOs that I worked for and supported. And so that's a lot of change in management, right? Angelina, have you ever thought of being a contestant on the show Survivor? (laughs) I did. And you know what? Those CMOs, they all inherited me. It's not a a one hired me, but they all inherited me. So so I was able to not only survive, but I actually thrived. You know, I I had fun Uh and learned something new. It was like a new company every two years. um, But changing management... It's not just putting a new person in. There's usually, well, often, there's a big reason why there's a change in management. Yeah, so it's really usually a signal you know, from the board or from the top that the company has lost its way or it needs to grow in a new direction or requires a reset after all, especially if you bring in the outsider, bring in the CEO from the outside. Clearly, that's a signal that the company has to take a U-turn or go in a different direction. So if you see a lot of management change, or maybe it's through an acquisition or divestiture, yes. or may, it could be through a natural evolution because a founder CEO or someone uh, that was a CEO of a startup might be not be the right person to lead the company as it goes through IPO and might not be the right person to lead the company as it expands globally. Right and becomes a more mature company. Mm-hmm. So companies needs change, and their management has to change uh, as well. So that's a very important warning sign. If you see a lot of change at the top, or even change in the marketing ranks or others, mm-hmm. that's a signal that the company is trying to reset itself and um, you know find a new path, find a new way of staying solvent. And I like to say you know a solvent career requires a solvent company. You know, if your company's not solvent, you're not you ain't going anywhere. Yeah, I chuckled when I saw that because you talked about certain marketers that really were not business first and they did everything they could protect themselves, then they went out of business. So Exactly. So anyway. much for that. Yeah. Well yeah. changing metrics. What uh, talk a little bit about that. 
So changing metrics, I see this a lot in the Bay. I'm in the Bay Area and I work with some technology uh, companies. I see this one a lot, especially as companies go from startup to IPO. You know, they start out doing demand gen. So the metrics are demand gen, you know, fill the funnel, sales, feed on the street. And the marketing leaders build their teams, their capabilities, their KPIs. They align their budgets. They get their agencies formed around, you know, how do I drive demand? How do I fill the funnel? Mm-hmm. And then as they go into IPO mode, they want to build a brand or a reputation, have people start knowing about them. So all of a sudden, there's a change not only in management in many cases, marketing management, but you'll see a change in metrics. All of a sudden, the marketing team that's focused myopically on demand gen, now all of a sudden, you the, the leader is saying, the CEO is saying, I need brand, I need reputation, I need some PR support, I need to get out there and make noise, mm-hmm. I need a campaign. And the skills that you have or the staff you have, the resources you have are probably a mismatch. So the metrics have changed pretty dramatically. And that can happen over the course of the year. You started out the year with one set of metrics. You end the year with a new set of metrics. And do you have the right team in place in order and agencies and support mm-hmm. or aptitude and capabilities in place to really drive in a new direction? So, so I see that as a very – a new direction often results – uh, in misaligned metrics and teams. And hence, it, it leads to marketing transformation. So that's another warning sign. Yes. And uh, one of the big takeaways about uh, this agility you talk about is that your metrics probably should be changing yeah, <laughs> over absolutely. time. So don't absolutely. freak out when the, when the goalposts change just a bit. It, it might be for a good reason. And actually, as a marketer, you could come through and say, I think we need, boss, we need to uh, move some of these goalposts. Um, but let's just... Uh, talk real quickly about something you just mentioned, which is about the demand marketing and the brand marketing. I I love this part. And you said that, let me just read from uh, page 105. You say, sometimes the program's goal is to get someone to take immediate action that moves him or her closer to the purchase. This is referred to as demand marketing. Other times, a program's goal is to build a favorable perception and trusting reputation over an extended period. This is referred to as brand marketing. Mm-hmm. But you go on to say that it shouldn't be an either or. Explain. Correct. No. So, uh, and I was taught this early in, in my in my career. Demand should always drive the brand, and brand should always reinforce and drive demand. So it's really a continuum. It's not an either or. Although I do see a lot of tug of war between brand and demand, and who's got the budget, who's got the resources, who's the top dog. Right. It shouldn't be an either. Either or, those two have got to be so connected at the hip that anything you do from demand needs to build a brand reputation, right? Mm-hmm. And all your brand work needs to result in something. It can't just be out there, you know, as image or persona. It really needs to drive uh, favorability and uh, consideration over time. Mm-hmm. So I think the two do need to work in partnership together instead of uh, – uh, competing with one another for resources or budget. Yes, and you go on to say, the reality is we need to work to accomplish three things. One, grow brand awareness. Two, generate leads and impact the bottom line. And three, which is probably my favorite and the most overlooked one, retain customers and make them your biggest advocates. Yeah. And you need to do all three all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. One other uh, quick tactical question. I wanted to ask you to explain what a marketing playbook is uh, and, and how it helps and, and what it contains. 
Sure. So I found uh, a number, and in my book, I talk about just a handful of tools. I think I have five tools that I think are essential for all marketing leaders. And not, you know, I'm not talking about technology tools. I'm talking about marketing communications tools. Yeah, like don't go buy the technology until you have implemented these these tools and processes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the tools, and I'll just cite them, you know, one is the communications brief. Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten very lazy as marketers and we ask the agency to just read our minds or to write the creative brief for us. And I think we need much more rigor and discipline internally and agreement internally on what the assignment is or what the challenge is and what the time frame is. The second is a messaging framework, because I think having a framework for what your messages are, both from the brand all the way to demand and how they connect, that's a very important tool that you need to invest the time doing. And it helps you to get buy-in and clarity. Exactly. And especially if you can do it on one page. The the best frameworks are one-page message frameworks. Amen. Yeah. And then everybody buys into it. We've had a lot of discussions at a company I was uh, have been supporting for the last eight months here in the Bay Area. I took two documents into the um, leadership team meeting. One was a manifesto, which is, you know, this is who we are and what we aspire to be. And the other one was this one-page messaging framework. We spent two hours noodling the message framework and saying, what are the top messages, the second messages, the supporting messages, and fourth-level messages. Mm. But once I emerged... There was two documents, one pagers, that the whole leadership team had signed off on or at least weighed in on. And from there, we can then develop content, right? Long form, short form, hashtags, all the rest. So many companies don't even get to that that point, though. Yeah. So bravo for doing that. Yeah. But the third thing, getting to your question, Douglas, is the playbook. So that's a key tool. And I think it's, you know, it's not a, um, you know, we need more um We need less planning and more plans. So a marketing playbook is really a documented, simple uh, roadmap so that all uh, marketers and communications professionals and your business colleagues from finance and HR and operations. And your new hires. And your new hires know exactly around the globe. So this is very important. It's around the globe. They know what the key priorities are, what the key strategies are, what the key investments are, and what that messaging framework looks like. And uh, that document, and it can be eight to 10 page document, really should be a living document, not something you do once a year and put on the shelf. It should be something that you live by. You know that, um, and that everyone buys into. But you have to adapt it and change it over time, so you can look at it quarterly. But it really gets everyone marching in the same direction. So you don't have the demand team doing one thing, the brand team doing something else, the web team, you know, developing content yet another way, the social team doing something different. It's really the one uh, uh, version of the truth, so to speak, that everyone aligns around. Right, and there's a reason why championship teams, pick your sport, all have playbooks. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because so, they work, they work. They do, and uh, you know, you bring a new coach in, one of the first questions, at least the sports journalists, is you know, what's, what's the playbook, what, what's going yep. on there, and what do the players spend so much time going over when they're not on the field? The playbook. So it's, it's not like business dreamed this up on their own. I mean, the sports is doing it, other organizations. So Angelina, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? So one thing, so I I think the key thing from the book is that the marketing art and science of yesteryear no longer cuts it. Success today requires keen insight into our customers and the agility to execute on that insight 
faster than our competitors. Those really are the only two sources of competitive advantage today. Mm. So that's the one key takeaway. And how you do it is contained in just 149 pages, which includes <laughs> uh, a 90-day checklist. Uh, folks, uh, as someone who's read the book, that pretty much uh, summed up the what of the book, and then you got to read it to get the how. But, you know, this book, and I've never said this on the show before, Angelina, but it's almost like I want to offer a money-back guarantee <laughs> to listeners, oh, because if they implement fun. what's in here and it doesn't help their career or their company, uh, send me the book back. <laughs> And I'll refund your money. I, I feel that strongly uh, about I like this book. That. So, and regular like listeners will know that I've never said that before. So, I think if marketers, uh, I mean, the marketers will have listened to this. They'll say, "Oh, yeah, this is for me. This is not for me." Uh, you don't read, need to read as many books as I do. But if you, let's say you read a few this year, I think this might be one. And no, I'm not getting anything out of this. So, uh, Angelina, <laughs> what books Thank have? You. My pleasure. I, I, I seriously uh, mean that. And this book is going to be on the desk for a while. And there's been a few others, not because not all the books are not uh, really terrific books, but there are some that are just super relevant to what we're helping clients with and what even we're doing as a, as a business. And as a matter of fact, like most agencies, we're in the process of updating our website. And yep. there were certain areas that we wanted to go into further. Like, um, for instance, when does it make sense to outsource? Well, yeah. you've got a whole section in there about for companies to understand when it makes sense and when it makes sense to hire an agency and when it doesn't make sense to hire an agency. And it's just like, I can't say that, but I can point to your book and say, look, don't take it from me. Look at what some of you, your book and a couple others are saying, like, this is what's going to make sense for you. So at any rate, excellent, excellent. what books have inspired your work and career? I know you mentioned several in this book, but I was interested to, to know what's what have been some of the touchstone books for you along your, your career? Yeah. So, you know, you have to keep in mind that I cut my marketing teeth during an era of big brands, mass marketing, mass media. You and me both, sister. Yeah. So I learned from some of the legendary greats, you know, uh, Edward Bernays, David Akers, Phil Kotler, Peter Drucker, Dave Ogilvie. The ones I would call out Al Reese and Jack Trout. Have yes. you read some of their? I mean, these yes. are And I noticed classics. that uh, Al Reese uh, did an endorsement for your book. He did. He's in his 90s. He's still practicing his agency with with uh, his daughter, uh -huh. Laura. And his signature book is Positioning, The Battle for Your Mind. And he really talks in his book about a brand should strive to own a word in the mind of consumer and what that word is. And you could take it to personal brand too. You know, What are you as a personal brand? What's that one word that you want to own in the mind of the consumer? And then he talks about positioning as the art of sacrifice. We that as book is always on the top marketing yeah, book list. Yeah, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just all, it's any, anybody who writes up a top marketing, top 10, top 100 marketing books, yeah. that's always on it. And with good reason. It's an excellent book. Another book that he wrote with, with his daughter, Laura Reese, is The 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. Yes. Have you seen that one? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I have that one, too, on my bookshelf. And he talks about marketing is branding. You know, branding is marketing. Marketing is branding. Kind of goes back to the, the brand and demand discussion we had earlier. And then he talks about in today's marketplaces, products are, are bought, not sold. The selling is in the brand, and branding facilitates that process. So I love those. Those two are really my go-to. I, I refer to them a lot. And I think his laws of branding are are as relevant today as they were when he wrote them several decades ago. Well, super. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you uh, recommend or are looking forward to reading? 
Yeah, so um, speaking of the branding, uh, I'll continue in that one. There is a book that came out last year by a woman named Denise Lee Young, and it's called Fusion. And it's how integrating brand and culture powers the world's greatest companies. Mm. So, So her belief is independently brand and culture are powerful. But she believes that together they are in, in unstoppable. So she's got a lot of case studies oh, from Airbnb yeah. and Adobe and Nike and Salesforce. And she's got a lot of interviews in there. But I really – I haven't read it yet. I purchased the book. It's on my shelf and I need to pour through it. But I think that whole thing of branding and culturing and how to power that you know, in an integrated way to be unstoppable, that it was an intriguing idea for me. How best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, thanks for asking. So Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career. It's available online from a number of fine establishments, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, IndieBound, and and many others. You can also request a copy from your local library and they'll order it for you. (laughs) You can read an excerpt and download a free chapter of my book on my website, marketingflexology.com. And thank you so much for allowing me to share my message with you oh, and my your audience. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I really like the book. And we're going to include links to your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, and uh, all the books that you've mentioned on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for you, the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player of choice, like uh, Apple Podcasts, for instance, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes. The name of the book is Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career. The author is Angelina Jaspers. Angelina, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. You are most welcome, and the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 212 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Mark Schaefer back to the Marketing Book Podcast for the fifth time to talk about his newest book, Marketing Rebellion, The Most Human Company Wins. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.